This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. We have a great show lined up today. We have Terry Doyle, who's the Chief Operating Officer of Easy Robot. We're going to hear all about consumer do-it-yourself robots. He's also the past co-chair of the Canadian 100, which was a leading or is a leading nonprofit organization comprised of the highest profile Canadian expatriate technology entrepreneurs, executives, and investors living and working in Silicon Valley. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show my first guest, Terry Doyle. Terry, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Rob. Glad to be here. So as I mentioned, Terry is the Chief Operating Officer of Easy Robot and a past co-chair of the C100. He's an experienced technology leader with an extensive track record of building platforms and ecosystems in the consumer electronics, software, and telecom industries. And prior to Easy Robot, he was a Senior Director of Business Development at Microsoft, leading their efforts in consumer electronics devices in Silicon Valley. So could you share the elevator pitch for Easy Robot? What is Easy Robot? Absolutely. And, and again, thanks for having me here. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, Easy Robot is a uh, company that's focusing on cloud robotics, creating products that will allow uh, people to build and use robots in a very easy way. Um, one of the big challenges we see with people who are uh, trying to get into the robotic spaces, it's really difficult to do things like very simple actions, gate, walking, picking things up. And we've created a platform which is uh, enables or empowers people who um, may not have any sort of background in coding to very quickly build and start using robots. So for somebody that wants to do this, what would they actually buy Sure. From Easy Robot. So we have uh, we have two sort of uh, two ways of thinking about it. One, we have a product line of about four different robots, which are uh, full robots. You buy them disassembled and you assemble them. Uh, they come with uh, you know a controller uh, specific to the to the device, as well as uh, what we call servos, which are the things that move arms and, and legs and feet. And you can build that, and it's a fully modular um, product, so you can do it in any different sort of form and add to it as you please, as well as print 3D parts. And that whole uh, group of uh, products, four products, is um, really actually used a lot in schools, but also by the maker community. But the maker community loves even better just buying individual parts like the controller and then using our platform in order to build, quite frankly, incredible things. You know, we've had people... Um, with virtually no backgrounds in in programming, uh, there's a roofer actually uh, in the Midwest who built for his wife a six foot tall robot that goes around their kitchen and in with an English accent conducts conversations with her and pours her wine. Um, oh, so this is Termini Terminator sized, absolute full size six foot tall robots. So we you have, control, you can enable robots of all sizes. Absolutely. Okay. So the, the maker community really quite likes, uh, one, this this extensive community of about 50,000 people that are using the platform and sharing. Um, I think probably the analog that's helpful for people is, is sort of, we're like the unity of robotics. So the community creates and does these things and then shares them. And by doing so, cuts the time for other people to do things like, hey, I just, picked up, I just figured out how to pick up a glass today. Here's how you do it. 
and that code is automatically shared through the platform and people can then say, I'll drag and drop it and now I don't have to worry about that. I can get my robot to do X, Y, or Z. Could you talk a bit about how big this robotics community is around Easy Robot? Sure, sure. We have a, we have a, um, uh, as I mentioned, the the community is is rather large, um, but the interesting part is that we have uh, probably our greatest success. More than eighty percent of our sales are in schools, so uh, uh, kids really from grade five to twelve are using the robots, and so schools are getting access to these robots. In, actually in 85 countries around the world, and they are uh, bringing the robots into school, and then kids from, you know, 11 to 18 are building and using these robots. So we have a, a larger maker community. We have a, a, a school community, and the school community is a little harder number to sort of get to, but uh, just because they're, the schools are very conscious about, and quite rightly so, having email addresses and information coming out of from kids who are under under the age of authority uh, or have, don't have the authority to provide their their information. So it's around 50,000 uh, people in the community, yeah. So that's quite a bit. It is. And that's it over is. what time frame? When was the company founded? Uh, the company's about six years old now. Um, started in classic sort of started in the basement uh, uh, of the founder in Calgary, uh, DJ Series. And uh, he started building and selling these robots out of his basement. And really, because he had the problem of he was trying to uh, uh, build robots himself, he he actually built a robot out of a Wally toy, and put the posted. And this the, is Wally, the Disney character. character. Yeah. yeah, he put it up on online on YouTube and has four million or close to four million views. Holy cow! Yeah, it's a it's it really spoke to a community, and he started to share. You know, these are some of the problems I encountered. This is how I solved them. That's really where it, the genesis for the company. So you talked about the example of the six-foot-tall mm -hmm. butler with mm -hmm. the English accent yeah. that's in somebody's kitchen. When you look at the roughly 50,000 people in the community and in particular in the schools, what are a couple of the other really interesting examples that you've seen? So so if you go onto YouTube uh, and, and take a look at our channel, there's there's some real incre really incredible things that are being done. Uh, you know, there's a, a, class, a class of grade five students who – um, actually did an entire a choreographed dance move for the robots to I, I Believe I Can Fly. So the little humanoid robot flapping his wings or his arms. And this is the one that's about a foot tall, I yes. think? Yeah, yeah. So so communities, uh, kids, this is sort of the, uh, the main ethos for the business is we want to remove all the friction for um, people to have an idea to completing a robot. And we even have a ratio inside the company that we use as like, people into the system versus robots produced, and we're trying to get that to a one-to-one -one ratio. So it's almost the antithesis of RAWs. We sort of think of RAWs as being very specialized for engineers. Yeah, and robot for people that are, yeah, go ahead. The robot operating system, excuse me, I cut you off, which is a, a series of libraries which have examples and that people can use in order to code, but it's not uh, nearly as, as um, probably... Uh, user friendly or, or open to to uh, to people who are non technical. So so you know a good example of another non technical. We have classes and kids in schools doing things. We have uh, a really interesting story that I just I love sharing is um, one of the one of the adults who bought our robot um, actually uh, has a he was a non technical person. I think he was a lawyer. Um, he had um, a long history of depression in his family. 
and he was quite concerned about his children's mental health and wanted to sort of understand it. So he'd actually have the robot greet the kids every day they came home from school. And because we have a platform which is so accessible, um, big companies like IBM, um, Microsoft, and Google have all built plugins into our, our platform for things like cognitive services, so facial recognition, emotion recognition. This particular individual had the robot greet the kids, and it would register their face, register their emotional state, and dump it into a spreadsheet. And so he collected three years of data about his kids' sort of well-being as a way for him to sort of study and make sure that they weren't demonstrating any signs of depression. We definitely didn't start Easy Robot to, 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 to do something like it's that. It's a really remarkable story. But it's, it just goes to show the sort of the power of the platform and the power of, of what we're doing to, to en enable people to actually do things that we would never have thought of. Well, let's switch gears here in a minute, and I would like to talk about where is robotics headed. But if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conneybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The lines here are open. It's 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. I'm here in the studio right now with Terry Doyle, who's the Chief Operating Officer of Easy Robot. So, Terry, when you look at where we are with robotics today, mm -hmm. people are using platforms like yours and others, like Misty Robotics, et cetera, to build from the bottoms up kind of what they would like to build in the real world. So yeah. it's really early days. Yeah. And robots have a limited ability today to climb stairs, open doors, go into the refrigerator. But you're also talking about today there is the ability to overlay perception where a robot actually can understand what it's looking at mm -hmm. and it can actually connect to the internet and start to do higher level behaviors. How long do you think it'll be from where robots are today, which are almost like kits, mm -hmm. et cetera, the early kit days of computers, mm -hmm. to where we get something that's more like a PC or a laptop, something that can actually walk upstairs and grab things and open doors? And when does that, when is that coming? It's interesting. Um, I, think, I think where we are now is probably in the, uh, the analog I like to use in the computing world is, uh, you know, you see occasionally uh, stories on the front page of the New York Times about, uh, I think it's called Cobot, which is a bartending robot, right? It's it's uh, quite visually striking to see this large robot arm moving around a bar pouring drinks. Um, I sort of think of the Cobot as being the calculator <laughs> of the of the robotics world. It's a really single use, single purpose uh, device, and we are are I think you're probably quite correct in identifying we're quite a way away from uh, a PC type device, which is fully um, functional as well as fully programmable and, and can start to open up the real levels of creativity of society to solve problems. So how far away do I think it is? I think it's probably the next eight to 10 years, we will probably see something which is quite significantly uh, fully functional and fully programmable, which will unleash a whole other layer of use in society. Yeah, it's interesting when you think about robots, because I think a lot of people consider a robot something that would be a general purpose tool. But we've lived with robots for years in our daily lives. So if you look at a washing machine or a dishwasher, arguably, that's a robot. 
Sure, sure. But you have to use it in a very particular way, but you can perform the same task over and over and over again. Right. And it's starting, they're starting to move up to be able to do more and more complex tasks. And general purpose tasks, things that they weren't necessarily, things that can be, um, that they have enough skills and dynamic uh, capability that they can actually be tasked to do things that they weren't originally designed for. So when we talk about the more generalized one, you think it's only about eight to 10 years until we see a butler that truly can walk up and down stairs and open doors and do things like that? There's, uh, as you would know, I mean, you're, you're, you're certainly seeing a lot of the deal flow in the Valley. There's a lot of money going into this. And I think there's a time uh, in the evolution of every market where people start to start to see those early returns and realize that there's there's value in continuing to invest. I think we're just at the start of that period. And I think a lot of people have seen the Boston Dynamics videos That's right. where you see the robots that look kind of like dogs. They're almost canine in nature, and they have legs that articulate backwards yeah. that can actually climb stairs and yeah. open doors and yeah. do these things. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest roadblock, the technology that needs to be developed to enable that in a more broad way? So I think something, I think probably the, the tough bit is hardware. And I think, you know, the, our, our founder DJ always uses this example as if in the eighties, somebody came to you and said, Hey, I've got this software. I'd like you to invest in this. People would laugh to you, laugh at you. They'd say, why would I want software? You know, I want to build a computer. People always think of robots as being the physical thing. And there is a period of time here where I think costs will come down and they need to come down so that people can start to experiment with them. I mean, you see that in the, uh, in the mobile phone industry, the consequences of uh, a billion five handsets being sold every year is that the cost of Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, you know, uh, radio chips have plummeted. And now people are thinking, okay, well, what else can I use, you know, these chips for? I'll stick them into wearables. I'll stick them into cars. I'll stick. So that's where we start to get this internet. Yeah, and it's things. clearly where your founder DJ saw a lot of this. Yes. yes. In the basement. Yes. In Calgary. Yes. So switching gears, yeah. and moving over to your work with the C one hundred. Yeah, the C one hundred. What is it? What was it like for DJ starting a business in Calgary, Canada? I don't think that it's a place that a lot of people think of technology startups, let alone robotic startups? Well said. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. So uh, I am a past co-chair of the C100. As you mentioned, the C100 is a, is a group of very smart and capable uh, executives who are invited into the group. Once you're invited into the group, we volunteer your time back to Canadian startups. And so we have, uh, you know, the group is roughly a third VCs, a third operators, and a third successful entrepreneurs. Includes people like Patrick Bichette, the ex-CFO of Google, uh, Shamath Palapattaya from social, uh, uh, from Facebook originally. Um, you know, Harley Finkelstein and Toby Lutke from uh, Shopify. Some really great, smart people. Um, the the tough bit in Canada is that. Um, we're a slightly more conservative group of people than maybe the Americans are. And as such, uh, the amount of investment wasn't really there for a long period of time to create an ecosystem. That investment has certainly changed at the, at the early stages. The trouble is if you're a good entrepreneur in Canada and you get a business to 10 or $15 million a year, you tend to get bought. 
And the reason why you get bought is rather than continuing to build it to something that can go public and correct. employ a lot of people. Correct. And and partially that's a, a chicken and egg problem. If you're a good founder and you've got a business to that sort of ten million mark, you don't really have that many choices for a bench. So you have you know, if you if you need a VP of enterprise sales in the valley, there's two thousand candidates. You, you just can't hire the people you need. Right. So you end up yeah, you end up, you end up, you're, you're capped. And so to a certain extent, fatigue, you know, sort of sets in and you go, okay, I'll cash out. And, and so even if you were any good at that, you wind up working for a company in New York, San Francisco, Boston, or something like that. So it's a bit of a self-perpetuating problem in that the, the s- people with scale experience, mostly, you know, market facing people, sales, business development, uh, some operations, some product management, they just don't exist in Canada. So what we try to do as the C100 is provide somebody like DJ, and actually DJ went through one of our programs. He went through our, our Series A program, which we take uh, two cohorts of uh, 20 companies a year, about 200 companies apply, and we basically run them through a boot camp. Is this so, how you met DJ? Yeah. So 48, it's called 48 Hours in the Valley. We bring down a, a cohort of about 20. It sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> there are no chainsaws or, or hockey masks. But uh, we, do, uh, we do run them through this program, and it's pretty straightforward. It's like here's how you build a world-class team. Here's how you build a world-class product. Here's how you pitch for money. We introduce them to investors. Uh, some of the folks from Shasta actually come down and meet with them. And we try to make it friendly so they can get positive feedback. Well, we have a Canadian on our team. Uh, we appreciate the tokenism. That's good of you to do that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, we're glad that you did it. Uh, uh, but, you know, we run them through that program. And we've had uh, we've had 262 companies go through the program in the life of the organization. And they've raised north of a billion in equity. So it's a it's a pretty impactful program, but the fact is, I think without the sort of hard work of a lot of volunteers, that support system doesn't really exist in Canada. So I think for somebody like DJ, it's an anomaly, one, to have a company like this that's selling in 85 countries around the world, has clear product market fit, um, to be starting in Canada in, in a place like Calgary. Calgary is an oil and gas town. So the availability of people doing finished consumer goods is almost none. So um, he is a real, uh, DJ is a real sort of anomaly. Absolutely. So most countries have areas which are more conducive to startup activity than others. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the US, people talk not just about the Silicon Valley Bay Area, but they talk about Boston and New York and Austin and Seattle as well. Mm-hmm. When you look at Canada, what are the leading startup areas up there? So Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver are the three big uh, cities for supporting and, and having fairly active uh, startup communities. And as I mentioned, um, you know, we, uh, this part of the C100's work in the past has really been trying to identify places where Canada can lead. So we really helped in a lot of the thinking around picking artificial intelligence as an area that the country could lead in and promoted and encouraged investment, uh, which resulted in a couple of activities in Canada called the Vector Institute. So Jeff Hinton, who's probably one of the, considered to be one of the godfathers of um, artificial intelligence, is uh, helps run an institute which is uh, turning out as many PhDs as possible in, in where, AI. Where is he based? He's at University of Toronto, in Toronto, and uh, the Vector Institute is effectively a uh, an agreement, uh, a partnership between government, industry, and academia, 
industry providing the problems, academia providing the PhDs and smart people to address those problems, and some of the funding came from the Canadian government. So there's there's areas where we're we're picking and we're trying to encourage the the government to invest to to help lead uh, for for Canada to help lead in the in the world in terms of uh, some areas, but other areas were not as strong. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conneybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Terry Doyle, the Chief Operating Officer of Easy Robot, a Canadian-based robotics company. So looking at Toronto, Toronto is an area where there's a lot going on in a suburb called Waterloo. Absolutely. I don't know if it's called a suburb. They, a suburb? they, would, they wouldn't think of it as that. What would they call it? Their own it's, town? It's, its own town, yeah. Okay, so it would kind of like, be like calling Oakland a suburb of San Francisco. Correct. People might not be too Correct. happy about that. Correct. Yeah. So in Waterloo, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, and robotics has a really interesting intersection with AI. It's mm. really the brains, the stuff that powers a lot of the technologies that, that enable robotics. And from what I've seen, I've seen a lot of startups come out that are doing interesting things around autonomous vehicles, AI for AI's sake to make other enterprise processes better. Maybe talk a bit about why that happened in that area. So uh, it's a, Waterloo's got a great engineering school. Uh, they figured out very early on that uh, creating a co-op program was also a great way to get engineers better exposure to what was actually going on in industry instead of teaching in an academic way. So they were open very early on to um, uh, creating these uh, work terms, and then the students would go back into the class and say, hey, I know that we're talking about this particular problem in class, but actually this is what's going on in industry. And so what happened is you saw engineers coming out of that program more and more suited to getting jobs and, and actually really contributing. It also got them exposure very early on to uh, Silicon Valley companies who started to realize, hey, this is, you know, as, as you know, when you're investing in, in startups, uh, very hard to get talent in the Valley. And so a lot of the large players started to realize this was a, a, a place to get world-class talent. I think the other thing that, that uh, also um, uh, created the opportunity was really the school's approach to um, creating uh, a network, an alumni network that really focused on, and a lot of U.S. schools do this well, but but really creating um, the the network of people to help people get jobs. So it was a number of factors, but you also get you know um, a final piece of the puzzle, which you didn't mention. Um, one of the founders of uh, BlackBerry, which is uh, sort of a semi-infamous <laughs> Canadian success story in the telecom space. Um, uh, started to invest really heavily in quantum uh, computing in the area. So actually it's got a nickname like every every place in the world wants to market itself. It's Quantum Lakes. It's Quantum Valley. Quantum um, Valley. Yeah. Uh, it um, is really interesting because uh, the founder um, basically created something called the um, – I'm forgetting the name of it. The it's a par, It's a theoretical physics institute and really starting to pull in some of the best in the world. It's been considered number one or number two in, uh, in the world uh, around um, theoretical physics. And the result was a lot of people started looking at what, what are the applications for this. And uh, so investment started to flow in. 
And as you know, when, when academia and investment get together, sometimes some really great ideas come out. Well, when you think about it, Google came out of Stanford, for example, and you see a lot of examples of that. And Waterloo has really done an amazing job. Absolutely. I think they're... Of, of innovating at this intersection of startups and research. Yeah. And it's, it's challenging. You know, uh, a lot of companies have moved, you know, in the AI example I was talking about before, the, there's a certain weight that occurs when you get enough momentum. Now, Samsung, Facebook, Google, you name any, you know, Uber, they've all built AI labs in Canada because they recognize that's where the talent's going to be. And partially that was because we, we pushed really hard. You know, some of the people in our network in the C100 helped Mark Zuckerberg get on a plane, go to Montreal and say, I'll take him, her, him, her, and him, her, and said to academics who were doing a lot of this work, why don't you come to Facebook? And I don't, I don't have any problem with them doing that. The amount of money was somewhat eye-watering and, you know, it's, it's worked out well for them, but the country lost a lot of talent. So, you know, our, our push for the Canadian government was to, to really invest and create opportunities for people who are smart in, in AI in particular to stay in the country, build great companies and build great technologies. Well, Canada. the other thing that happens, too, is when you have successful entrepreneurs, whether or not they leave the yeah. country or not, often they come back. That's right. So I noticed you haven't mentioned Vancouver as much. And the question that I had for you about mm. Vancouver is, is it a city with beautiful uh, ocean views and mountain views and tall glass skyscrapers on an island or what what else is going on there so uh so good question um is it just a bunch of glassy condos so last night i, I think i was we were talking a bit about this when we started off um last night we had a, a small reception for Stuart butterfield who's the founder of slack and Stuart actually lives in vancouver and slack uh closed yesterday a series H round of $427 million at a $7.1 billion valuation. And just so you know, the four- Is that Canadian funny money or is it no, uh, U.S. Though. dollars? That's real okay. though. That's not discounted. Uh, the 427 actually came because that's the date of his mom's birthday. Just oh, that's I like that. Just so you know, when, when you're raising a series H, you can determine those things. Um, he uh, he was asked the exact same question. You know, uh, he, he moved- the company started there. He moved a big chunk of the business to San Francisco, but there's still a significant number of uh, people in the business there. And he was asked, you know, point blank, is Vancouver the place to start a, uh, a company? And he said, look, one of the big issues is there aren't significant headquarters of companies there. And without that concentration, uh, it really is uh, an economy driven by real estate and marijuana. Becomes harder to kickstart it. <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks for the overview on Canada, the yeah, ecosystem. Yeah. Going back a bit, were you were you born in Canada, or were you born a little further south, or a lot further south? Yeah, I uh, I like to say in dog reading terms, I'm a mutt because I was actually born in Australia, but my parents, uh, my mom is Canadian, my father who's uh, who's no longer with us, it was Irish, um, and. Uh, we grew up, uh, there are five kids in the family. I was the youngest, and we, all, we were all born in different places. So we moved around a lot, and uh, the uh, I became a Canadian when, I'm t when I was 10, and I sort of think of myself as a Canadian. I identify as a Canadian, though I am married to an American. So you moved to Canada when you were 10? Uh, actually, earlier. I became a Canadian when I was 10. I, I, we moved from Australia when I was about four. 
And where in Canada? So uh, we actually moved. Here's a climate change for you um, from Sydney, Australia to Winnipeg, which is in the in the prairies, which is very cold and snowy. And then from there to Kingston and then eventually Toronto. And for people that aren't as familiar with Canadian geography as they might be with U.S. geography, when you say the plains, Winnipeg, what are we talking about? Maybe just set the scene. Uh, so not far. Um, uh, think of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay. Or think of Fargo. Think of Fargo. Think of the movie Fargo. Yes, yes. Kind of like that. You betcha. Okay. So when you were growing up, did you do anything entrepreneurial? I did. Um, my sort of family, uh, we all have different uh, careers and chosen paths, but uh, – my brother started a business, and I started working with them very young, at sort of 12, 13, helping out. Um, I was always involved in, in something new. I was always the, the kid that uh, uh, would try something quite different. So I was actually um, – uh, I'm a lawyer by training, so but don't hold that against me. Uh, and while I was in law school, I actually joined uh, a startup um, called Microsoft, which was a startup uh, telecoms provider in Canada. And it was a. It's called Microsoft. Microcell. Soft. Oh, excuse Cell. me. Cell. Yeah. Microcell. Okay. Yeah. And uh, joined them for a summer while I was in law school, and I thought this is one of the coolest things ever. I I love this. Why don't Why don't I do more of this instead of becoming a lawyer? And so I actually, through that experience, met um, one of the most established VCs in Canada, a guy named Ben Webster, who uh, was from an old Montreal family who. Uh, whose first investment, believe it or not, was providing his college roommate at Princeton the capital for a patent on Velcro. Oh. So his first investments go, that was a bit of a killer. So I, w I wonder what that first meeting was like <laughs> when he got the pitch for Velcro. Was it a picture of a patent with little looping hooks and fabric? How does that go? How does the first... Pitch I have for a few, Velcro go. What did he have to I say have a, about this? I did have, he ever talk about he'd this? He never talked about it. He was a really interesting guy. He was, um, you know, he was by he was he was starting in venture. You know, when venture was starting here, he just did it with his own family money and did it for a long time. But he never really talked about the experience. But he was quite an interesting guy who was involved in a lot of different things. And my sort of time with him was relatively short. He passed away very unexpectedly while I was, well, when I joined the firm and that was uh, in the late nineties. So it was a perfect time to be in venture the first time. And I'm sure you have your own thoughts on the cycle. But, uh, when I was involved, we were looking at sort of taking a, about a hundred million dollar fund, which back then was significant and building it through seed stage investments. Yeah, I've just hung up on this Velcro thing. I'm imagining the Velcro pitch. Somebody coming along. I think it was literally like his his college roommate and his college Somebody roommate. Somebody saying, like, "What's wrong with buttons? <laughs> like, what's wrong with zippers? Why don't zippers work that well?" And I could imagine somebody, if it was a partner meeting, if you came in to pitch it at a venture firm, people would say, "This is dumb. I don't get it. It's noisy. It's loud. It sticks buttons to stuff. are quiet. Zippers they they close everything up." And they're really easy, and they work over and over. I, I, it, Who needs it, this? It, it seems really crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. And he was—he took some big bets. What What else was he known for? Uh, uh, more recently, he was—he was the money behind a company called Open Text, which is a big Canadian consolidator in the enterprise space, um, but a software company started by. Uh, uh, 
a well-known entrepreneur in Canada. He, he, he got into lots of things that were technology and non-technology. He just had a very sort of broad view and, and took very, very significant risks. So you mentioned your brother's business. Mm -hmm. Did you go to work for him for a little while? No, what I did was I, I went actually from, uh, from law school into uh, venture for a while, and then I actually went back and completed, because uh, I actually left law, uh, completed my law degrees, or completed my law training, and then was actually working for a uh, wireless carrier in Canada called Bell, Bell Canada. Um, Bell Mobility was the, the wireless business. And while there, it was the sort of late 90s, and all the mobile internet startups started uh, popping up, and I actually went and joined one for uh, a couple of years. So I, I actually moved from being a lawyer to going and doing business development all over the world. It sounded like there was a moment where you realized, I'm probably not going to be a lawyer is my career, but you kept mom happy, you got the degree, and then you went in <laughs> yeah. and joined Bell Canada. Yeah. And it was at this time when people started to hear about the internet and started to hear about email. What What was going on what were the interesting startups was was yeah. rim and blackberry were those getting started they were the just time? they were just starting up and just starting to get market traction at the time so the idea that not only was there the internet but it was the internet in your pocket uh people started to really understand the impact of that and so there were lots of different startups i actually went to go work for a wireless middleware a company called wisdom with a y and uh they got about a series b 50 million dollar uh round and uh, I basically went and sold to carriers all over the world. So a lot of Latin America, uh, a lot of uh, U.S. work. And for people that are wondering, what is mobile middleware? Could you describe what mobile <laughs> – it's a mouthful. Mobile it's, middleware. Yeah, is. yeah. It's, uh, it was effectively a way of translating and, and providing a platform for people to create content and put it onto small devices and adapt to all the different devices that were out there. It was uh, it was a work in progress. It was definitely um, new in the space, and there was a lot of customers that didn't get it. But we had customers like Lycos. Nokia was one of our partners. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that yeah. for a moment. But if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. Here in the studio right now with Terry Doyle, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Easy Robot and prior co-chair of the C100. So when you take a look at companies, technology companies, there are technology companies, consumer companies that are very famous that people understand what they built. Mm -hmm. You look at Nest. They built this internet-connected, beautiful thermostat. People know what Snapchat is, Facebook is, Apple is. And then there are these mystery companies that are building databases and things that are mysteries to a lot of people except that are in the industry. So that's where you start to think about Oracle and PeopleSoft and different companies that are building, say, HR management software, et cetera. When you look at middleware, how do you, how do you decide for a company that is building stuff that sells to other enterprises that there's an opportunity there? How do you figure out how big that market is and how valuable it can be? It's it's definitely a struggle. A lot of the times, especially when, when I was doing it, so much of what you're doing was just trying to show a return on invest, any form of return on investment. So getting the TAM, the total addressable market, was often very difficult because you'd say, we think that this particular type of company would be a buyer, but you'd only have one or two indicators that they would be that type of company. So in this case, it was carriers. So we thought 
we think we can sell the carriers because we've had a couple of carriers say yes. So therefore, how many carriers are there? Let's try to figure out, you know, who else is selling, look at the total addressable market, et cetera. And so the hard bit was you wind up doing a lot of work for free to show something that worked. And then, you know, it's a classic product market fit problem. Can you show that somebody's actually willing to put their hand in their pocket and pay you for it? And so you do a lot of work on spec and a big part of managing your burn rate was how, you know, who you targeted as a customer to convince them that it was worthwhile to do it. And with mobile middleware, where you were enabling basically internet services Mm -hmm. to be built on top of mobile phones, Mm -hmm. that was really a forward looking thing at the time. And the other part of the bet to a certain extent is that the carriers wouldn't really be able to do it themselves. themselves. So that's a classic. So, you know, uh, m- a part of my career I spent um, as corporate development, doing corporate development for British Telecom and then and then companies like Nokia. A big part of that sales process is really this build-by-partner analysis. And so a lot of the time when you'd go in, you'd say, you'd hear a customer say, hey, you know, this is really great, but we've got 500 engineers. We could do it ourselves. And your response to that generally has to be, you're right. You could, if you were able to dedicate those time, the time and resource, but the cost of time to do that, because it'll take you two years. It took us four or however long it did for us to build our product. You know, you can save those four years and license it now. So it's a classic sort of build. And then you have that conversation, not just once, but you have it about 10 or 20 times with different people in the organization to persuade them and get them to do something. It was something actually, you know, even internal, internally in, in a business when I spent lots of time at Microsoft, we'd often have that conversation about an acquisition. Hey, we're looking at this company. It'll get us into this market. We think it's a good opportunity. And the response back, particularly from the engineering folks, would be, hey, you know, I've got a thousand engineers I can put on that. So you mentioned you were at Microcell before. Yes. And then you ended up at Microsoft. So the the arc of my career was was to go from a startup called Wisdom uh, into British Telecom. From British Telecom, I went to Nokia, and from Nokia, I was actually part of the acquisition of the handset business into Microsoft. Okay, so you went from mobile into Microsoft at a pretty interesting time for Microsoft because Microsoft had been trying to build and replicate their success with Windows into the mobile operating world. And as yes. we know that largely didn't work out. That's correct. So the the way that worked was uh, they uh, had missed the shift to mobile. Um, they were looking for uh, a partner in Nokia to actually get distribution for their operating system. So they actually paid us a significant am- amount of money to actually provide phones in the marketplace. You know, Nokia at its peak was selling uh, had generally between 30 and 40 percent market penetration in 120 countries around the world. It was the giant. It, it was a dominant giant. It was even up until 2010 or 2011. Uh, it was still the it was still the leading handset manufacturer. It it missed the shift from the uh, sort of proprietary to the open or app economy, and touchscreen and app com- combined through the work that Apple did. Uh, definitely created the problems for the business. But the fact is, uh, Microsoft initially started to pay Nokia to distribute their platform and eventually said, all right, this, why don't we just buy the business? And so they bought the handset business. And that was under Balmer. And uh, uh, eventually the deal took so long to clear because it was there were so many regulatory hurdles. Uh, Satya Nadella came in and 
Satya basically said, I don't want to be in the hardware space. So things changed. Things changed. So, so how'd you end up in Silicon Valley? Yeah. So, uh, I was working for British Telecom. I joined, uh, BT, uh, when they were trying to figure out what to do with 30,000 patents. And, uh, they had what I called the crocodile Dundee. And uh, what year was this? Uh, this was 2007. Sorry, excuse me. Um, but it's in that yeah, time two, frame. 2007. Yeah, 2007. Uh, it was, um, uh, uh, sorry, we moved from, he- sorry, we moved here in 2007. It was 2001. Excuse me. Uh, we moved to the UK. Uh, my wife and I, we, we basically started, uh, a whole, I started a whole business around licensing patents. BT had, um, f- with the, the help of Corning, uh, developed the entire photonics industry. So the idea of shooting light down a piece of glass and conveying data was invented by British Telecom. And along with a lot of other hard work, they created a patent portfolio of about 30,000 patents, which they had never Holy licensed. Holy cow. They had never licensed. So them. they created the idea of fiber optic networking. This is one of the 30,000 patents. Yes. And so somebody uh, realized that this was a hugely valuable asset and really only IBM had ever made a business around licensing patents. And so we went out and created an entire business around licensing patents. There's really only two ways you make money from patents, the carrot and the stick. And it's really the stick that Did gets you learn money. to deploy both? Yes, although as a... You for- kind of hold the carrot <laughs> in one hand and the stick in the other hand. Or- as, a, as a former lawyer, I gravitated towards the stick, which was... So you did get a chance to use some of your attorney I, yes, skills. Yes, I walked in the room and said, Hi, my name's Terry. I'm here... Uh, I'm here to I'm here to point out that you owe us some money, and uh, we'll be happily going on our way if you pay us the did money. You, did you pick up a British accent when you were working with I, BT, it, and you were I coming sli- in with a stick? Yeah, I, I did. I did slip into it once in a while. No. Uh, so uh, the great news is we built an, a fantastic business around patents for BT, and because of that, uh, they asked me to do more M and A work because I was very good at big complex transactions, and so they um, actually asked me to uh, do some M and A work in Asia. And once I had done a couple of really great public acquisition, public company acquisitions there, they, they asked me to move to the U S. So I moved in 2007, uh, to, uh, to San Francisco to notionally focus on, on, uh, U S. So 2007 in the Bay area was an interesting time because in 2007, 2008, we went into a heck of a, a bear market for a couple of years where people thought the world was going to end and things changed in tech, et cetera. What was that like coming to the Bay Area at that time? Boy, it was uh, interesting. I bought some real estate at the same time too, which is uh, – I caught that knife on its way down. Um, yeah, it was – It was. Uh, the good news was uh, we were looking at deals all over the world. So um, as as is usually the case with big multinationals – I think it was seven days after I landed, uh, I wound up starting a public company acquisition in Singapore, uh, which is not something I'd recommend from the Bay Area because my deal team was in the UK and the target was in Singapore. And that meant that the only time I could get everybody on the phone was between one and four in the morning. So I was Yeah, doing... that's pretty rough. <laughs> so I did that. Up. Well, yeah. actually, I've always wondered about this. For when you're working on these big, global deals, mm-hmm. international deals. You have people calling in from different time zones. If you have a one o'clock conference call in the morning, do you go to sleep before that? Do you take a nap or do oh. you just power through oh. and behave like any f- new parent behaves in terms of 
I'm going to stay up all night and I'm just going to deal with the fact that I'm only going to get about three hours of sleep. It's mostly the latter. You just suck it up. In, in a lot of cases, it will depend because for every call you're doing at one in the morning, there's probably six to 10 hours worth of work that you have to do beforehand. Oh, so you're working before it anyways. Absolutely. So you generally don't get to go to sleep. Um, and it's also more challenging when you're negotiating with somebody who uh, maybe has uh, is um, uh, one not reading some of the body language that you have because you're on the phone, and two maybe um, uh, English isn't their first language, so you have to be careful how you communicate some of the things you're trying to do. So nuances um, sometimes get lost, and so it's a challenging thing to do. But it's also challenging to do when your gray matter is not firing. So bringing it full circle, mm -hmm. coming back, how did you get connected with the C100 and then talk about how you ended up courting DJ or DJ courted you for you to go back into the startup world with Easy Robot? Yeah, yeah. so uh, thanks for asking. I, uh, interesting time. Um, when I left Microsoft after Satya uh, made the decision uh, to, to get out of hardware completely, um, I wanted to take a break, and my good friend Scott Bonham and uh, Angela Strange, who were uh, the chairs of uh, co-chairs of the C100 at the time, two two good investors, uh, approached me and uh, basically said, uh, "Hey, how would you like to get involved?" And uh, I, you know, uh, I am a proud Canadian. I consider myself Canadian. I thought this is a good time to give back. So I got involved and, and realized there were so many wonderful things that we could do, and it was a real inflection point for the country. And so it wound up taking much more of my time than I thought it would, but uh, gave me so many new and interesting people uh, to connect with in the Valley. There are a lot of Canadians in the Valley, not just the ones in the C100. Yeah, and your background with all the moves that you made, all the travel you've done, working with global organizations, sounds like it was a natural fit. It was, and the great news was, uh, you know, any time that you're trying to share some of your experience, as you know, in the Valley, uh, uh, the networking piece is, is important, but, but the giving back piece is really important. And so uh, it provided me with a great opportunity to do that. And so while I was uh, working with the organization, and I'm still on the board now, um, uh, the the cohorts of companies would come through, and and we would meet everybody from government ministers, the prime minister, all the way down to you know startups with uh, three people in a garage, and so you just got exposed to a number of people, and uh, one of one of the uh, entrepreneurs who was helping out DJ and, and Easy Robot. Uh, he and I were just catching up and he said, gosh, you know, this great company that I'm working with, they really need a COO and, uh, they just really need somebody strong commercially. Uh, well, you know, I, I know a thing or two about, you know, doing deals and building companies. So, um, went and talked to DJ and he just, where was that first meeting or call? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, the first time. Uh, we talked on the phone for about an hour, and we didn't actually get around to talking about the business. And he's in Calgary. Yes. And you're down here. Exactly. What were you talking about? The Calgary Stampede? Oh, no, what, no. What no. were we you were, talking we about? We were talking about our, our, our life experiences and our approach to technology. And, and what makes you, uh, DJ really unique is he has, um, you know, it's one of the reasons why he built a community that is so passionate around him is he has a strong desire to help and uh, a strong desire to learn. And he he really understands the value of teaching and explaining things. So, you know, we're Canadian. We're, we're probably nicer than the average person. Uh, at least we like to think of ourselves as that. And he, you know, he just, 
he thinks very strongly about, or he thinks very, he's very passionate about robotics being used for good. You know, he has a very clear position on, on, uh, and you pick this up in the first very, phone call. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, I've said this in the past and I've said this in the context of the C100, I consider myself Canadian for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is, um, my time in Canada formed my values and I brought those values all over the world. When I was doing business all throughout Asia, Europe, Latin America, those values were reflected in how I conducted myself in my business and my life. And we have about two minutes here, but when you look at those values, people like to talk about culture and values and all these things, and it ends up being a grab bag of 20 different things. And then you get confused because you say those are all the nice things. When you think of the values, are there two key values, three key values you think of? And we have about a minute and a half here. Uh, I think probably the thing that uh, I think of as being a core is diversity. And it's, uh, you've seen that in, uh, in the way we've conducted our, our policy towards the rest of the world and including people. Um, you know, we being Canada, Canada. Yes. Okay. So when the rest of the world was saying, Hey, we're not really interested in Syrians. Canadians said, give us 25,000 more. So it's diversity and that diversity doesn't just get reflected in skin color, but also thought and inclusiveness. So I think those are probably the two that I would say are probably the most important. And things that you're focused on with Easy Robot as you hire, as you work with partners, et cetera. Super important for us. Any other values or? For Easy Robot, uh, for us, it's really about how do you in, empower people to uh, unleash their creativity. Well, the mission orientation means a lot because it helps with recruiting people. And I think people miss that. So independent of this idea of in double bottom line, mm-hmm. The reality is you can hire exceptional people when you have a great value set and a great mission. I would agree. Yeah. So, Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, for people that would like to learn more about Easy Robot, where should they go? www.easy-robot.com. And for people that want to keep up with you in particular? Uh, terry 3 Doyle. At Terry Three Doyle on Twitter. On Twitter, yeah. And then the final one. This won't surprise you. The C One Hundred for people who'd like to learn about that. Yep. Triple W the C One Hundred dot org. Great. Well, thanks again, Terry. Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.